When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose, and joining me for The Bigger Picture today, I'm glad to say, is Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Um, Tim, where would you like to begin with today's conversation? I think we really have to begin with the death of Mikhail Gorbachev. Um, the former Soviet leader, and many people would argue the architect of the end of the Cold War. Architect, whether by design, whether consciously, or indeed as a form of unintended consequence of his actions. But he was quite a remarkable man. He was born in 1931. Um, He was born into quite a humble home. Um, He lived of course, in the Soviet Union through the Second World War, which was a devastating time, millions of dead and more than 17,000 villages uh, damaged or destroyed. Um, He, from a young age, uh, became a believer in uh, communism, or at least the Russian version of it, which, of course, technically was Marxism-Leninism, He joined and rose through the ranks of the Young Communist League. And then he did well um, in the sort of adult Communist Party. He became an expert in all kinds of things. Uh, He was thought of uh, as good in areas such as logistics, agriculture, transport. Um, He rose through the ranks at regional level and then uh, eventually uh, was elected onto the Politburo. He's someone who really broke through the Soviet leadership uh, at the tail end of the Brezhnev era. And although there were subsequent leaders of the Soviet Union, notably Andropov and Chernenko, uh, Gorbachev will be remembered for being from a different generation. He was not an old Bolshevik. He was really a product of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Those are when his sort of adult worldview was uh, honed. And I think he was very, very similar in his worldview to other what I would call liberal communist people like Alexander Dubček, uh, the former uh, uh, Czechoslovak uh, leader during the uh, so-called Prague Spring. Of course, we all know the rest Gorbachev was someone who engaged with Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, uh, put through all kinds of really important reforms. Uh, People talk about perestroika, glasnost, uh, nuclear arms treaties. Um, Of course, the Soviet Union, Soviet economy in the 70s and the 80s in particular, really went into decline. They fell behind the West in terms of military technology, and there were huge challenges like um, uh, the the Soviet belief that the US Star Wars military program was real, and indeed 
the vast cost to the Soviet Union of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. So in many ways, I think that Gorbachev was a liberal communist. Um, he wanted to reinvigorate uh, and open up uh, and allow more free speech and more respect for human rights in the Soviet Union. I don't think he really intended to collapse, however, the Soviet Union or to fully overthrow the Communist Party. That was something that almost became an unintended consequence of the decline in the system and, and, and many of his reforms. Mm -hmm. I think he thought that you could reform the system. Um, but the last thing I'll say uh, on this is that I think in recent months, it became clear that he was no admirer of uh, Vladimir Putin. And I think he thought that, um, that whilst it was a shame that the Communist Party uh, had lost power, and in many ways, the former Soviet Union fragmented, Gorbachev, given the choice between his sort of free-minded liberalism, or the sort of increasing tyranny um, and uh, autocracy, of Vladimir Putin, I think um, Gorbachev uh, morally and intellectually would have sided with the liberals. So I think for me, he is truly a great man. Um, and, uh, and it's a shame, it's a great pity that his contribution will not be honored with a full state funeral. Well, that was about to be my question to ask how he's considered in Russia itself, no admirer of Putin, but it, does that mean Putin's not admirer of him? Why no state funeral? I think that the Russian population are divided. I think younger people who have access and rely more heavily on social media um, uh, will probably see Putin generally, uh, sorry, will see Gorbachev as generally a good guy. But for lots of older Russians, um, he not only brought an end to the Soviet empire, but he almost brought an end uh, to uh, the, the sort of strident confidence that the Soviet Union had no doubt engendered in much of its population. Mm -hmm. If you're an older Russian, you grew up in a world where you were taught, and, and, and many of you believed, of the inevitability of the triumph of uh, of Soviet communism. And when that world collapsed, um, there was a national collective nervous breakdown. And whilst Gorbachev then sort of promised them democracy and openness and freedom and a better standard of living, of course, what, what followed in the 1990s, what many people experienced was hardship, high levels of inflation and huge dislocations in the economy, in health, in welfare, and in society. And also the rise of a lot of criminality and a lot of thievery. So I think that for a lot of people, um, he not only heralds the end of a degree of what I might call small c conservative certainty, you know, that stable and certain world that appeared to so many to be the Soviet Union for so long, um, but he also heralded something that Russians have historically been afraid of for hundreds of years. He, he brought about great change that delivered the experience of anarchy. 
and Russians are terrified of that more than anything else. Mm. I remember studying history, and particularly when we were looking at the 19th century um, revolutions, um, being taught that when you have an autocratic regime, that's the beginning of liberalization. This is the most dangerous time for the regime because they will try and answer what people are calling for with just incremental changes towards freedom, but that, that somehow is the most dangerous moment because it's making people want more. Is that what happened, do you think, in, in the Soviet Union? Yes, and, and ironically, um, I think that is right. There are many counterintuitive elements to, to these pivot points or these inflection points in history. Um, I'll give you another one that, that's, that's a mirror of what you've just described. Um, uh, academics like Martin Jakes uh, and, and, and the great professor of sociology at the Open University, um, Stuart Hall, uh, Stuart has now died, they pointed out in the early 1980s in an excellent book called The Politics of Thatcherism that for Margaret Thatcher to liberalise the economy in the, the way that she did, she had to first centralise power and authority in the hands of the government. So remember, the first move of Margaret Thatcher wasn't to privatise or liberalise anything. It was actually to give the police a 28% pay rise. Uh, why was that important? Well, it was important that she and her inner coterie uh, knew that to make the reforms uh, that they wanted to do, to liberalise the economy in the way that they wanted to do, um, they were going to come up against a lot of opposition uh, not least from the trade union movement, and that there would be potential social unrest, as indeed there was. Toxteth riots, Brixton riots, the Aslev strike, SOGAT 82, you know, it goes on and on and on, the miners' strike. Through all of that, the police remained loyal to the government. And one of the reasons they did it was because the government had funded them mm. so well. And so you have these really weird moments where... Um, Yes, to liberalise, you often need to centralise um, and, and to make sure that your core state, if I could put it like that, is on side. But often, um, great moments of authoritarianism um, um, can denote um, periods of, of, of great liberalisation. And I think it's really interesting, you know, when you look at Andropov and Chernenko, they were emblematic of the deeply conservative and, and very authoritarian um, um, old Soviet Union. They were almost the last blast mm. of the old KGB and the old ways of the system. Um, but boy, they ran out of ideas. They had very little to offer. And so the system started to turn to Gorbachev with his liberalizing agenda. But if you were watching Chernenko on the day he became uh, Soviet leader, uh, you would be forgiven, I think, for thinking that this deeply conservative and autocratic regime probably had a lot more life left in it. And I think uh, Gorbachev unleashed, he recognised, unleashed forces that then surprised everyone and simply overwhelmed the system mm. and swept it away. Tim, thank you. Time for us to change subject. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. We're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. 
complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is The Bigger Picture on Share Radio. I'm Simon Rays in conversation with Professor Tim Evans of Middlesex University. Tim, what are you choosing as your second subject, please? The second uh, topic is uh, a comment piece uh, that was written for and published on Reuters uh, by, I believe, their uh, one of their, their global um, current affairs correspondents, one of their experts, uh, an interesting man called Peter Apps. I believe Peter uh, is a member of the Labour Party. He also says, uh, in a way I don't quite understand, that he's also uh, a, a reservist in, in the British Army, but boy does he uh, write well and he has interesting views. Um, and he's written this really interesting piece um, um, written just a few days ago. Uh, it's called From US to China and Europe, Saudi, Saudi Arabia seizes the, the diplomatic moment. And the article starts by reminding us that it was not that long ago um, when the um, uh, the journalist uh, Yamil uh, uh, Khashoggi um, was reputedly uh, murdered uh, by Saudi operatives um, in Istanbul. Um, uh, and that as a result of that, uh, the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman uh, was shunned um, uh, by the West and um, and all the key groups like Amnesty International, you know, for for what was you know not only illegal but a but a frankly shocking um, uh, operation. Um, and what Peter is mapping out is the way that the current crisis uh, with Ukraine and Russia. Uh, is forcing uh, a sea change um, in diplomacy and in the way that people um, are working with Saudi Arabia and how Saudi Arabia are exploiting it. It, it wasn't that long ago that the US President Joe Biden um, met with uh, 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 Mohammed bin Salman. <clears throat> of course, they didn't shake hands, they bumped fists, um, but that itself is emblematic of, of, of America wanting to bring Saudi Arabia on side and wanting Saudi Arabia to increase uh, their supply of oil, no doubt, um, uh, to help control uh, spiraling energy costs, energy costs that are particularly damaging for most members of NATO and, um, and, and for Europe. But then it also points out how um, there's a potential rapprochement with Iran, usually the great traditional foe of Saudi Arabia, um, how Saudi Arabia uh, has become the largest supplier of oil to China. Um, and basically, um, the article details just how um, the rising US-China tensions are creating a new sort of bipolar world with countries like Saudi Arabia in the middle able to extract significant 
um, not only significant money, uh, but but significant uh, diplomatic leverage. Ultimately, Saudi Arabia is playing um, the great powers of the world and using its its economic uh, and natural resources um, uh, in in that quest. And where this goes, where this goes vis-a-vis Russia, China, the US, Turkey, and indeed many of the Stans, places like Kazakhstan, mm. Uzbekistan, is absolutely fascinating. But um, there are there are there are unexpected alliances. You know, Israel has had in recent years. This started under President Donald Trump, an increasingly cozy alliance with UAE and with Saudi Arabia. Um, uh, UAE is increasingly dancing with the Russians and the Chinese. The point is that Saudi Arabia uh, and other players in the region um, are benefiting and exploiting the geopolitics of the world's current woes. And the world, the Western world, or anybody other than Russia or any of its allies, actually want Saudi to increase production. But I mean, they haven't really, well, a tiny amount, because it's in their interest to keep the price high. I mean, you know, we're, they're expecting, I think, along with everybody else, that um, the oil price would, would stay weak as the world weaned itself away from um, fossil fuel. So I think the, the answer is that there is, there is no reason at the moment for the Saudis to want to increase uh, the price of oil. That said, they do not want uh, the price to crash as a result of them causing such a major recession in places like Europe that it becomes a depression um, and that, um, uh, that, that things spiral out of control. So they are going to try and maintain the price. But if the West, you know, starts to um, go into uh, a real economic slump, um, then, then to maintain that high price, they may have to reduce production. And that ultimately becomes counterproductive. So they're, they're walking a tightrope. But at the moment, I think they're doing well. And at the moment, from their point of view, um, they are able to use their muscle in the diplomatic arena to really engage with all the major powers and to be taken very, very seriously. Thank you, Tim. Um, Right, time for our third Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. I'm in conversation with Professor Tim Evans of Middlesex University. Uh, Tim, what's our final subject? So the final subject is an article that has just been published by Alistair Heath at The Telegraph, which is headlined, Putin has pulled off a shock win that could destroy the free world. Basically, Alistair is arguing that the Kremlin's uh, energy war is pushing Europe uh, and the UK towards a catastrophic economic meltdown. And that that basically, as our states intervene more, um, as more punitive taxes uh, come in, uh, as our politicians 
uh, talk more about green issues. Uh, and for example, many of them don't fully engage with things like fracking uh, that, um, that, that, that this will actually play into Putin's hands. The article also points out that, the, as we know, the ruble has been the best performing currency pretty much anywhere in the world this year. Um, uh, and also the US dollar is doing well, but the British pound and the euro are, are almost in free fall. Mm. Uh, the, the, the pound this morning hit 115 against the dollar. And of course, this is very, very important. In fact, the euro is almost at parity, uh, $1 for one euro. This is very important because all the world's great commodities, things like oil, are denominated uh, in the dollar. So even if the dollar price uh, of oil was to come down, well, if we in Europe and in Britain have sinking currencies, we then won't get the additional uh, add-on benefit of, of those lower prices. So there is a sort of vortex of doom that Alistair points out here uh, that is significant. But he quite rightly points out that under Donald Trump, and you know I'm no fan of Trump, but under Donald Trump, boy, was fracking encouraged. And of course, America has, uh, to all intents and purposes, become a lot more uh, self-sufficient in energy uh, in recent years than we could have imagined 10 or 15 years ago, certainly. Um, uh, and that and that because of that, because they're doing so much fracking, because the Fed has indeed started to increase interest rates, um, so the dollar is seen somewhat as a safe haven, unlike Europe, where uh, there's increased political polarization. We might next time see the breakthrough of the French far right. There's some very worrying trends with the far right in Italy. Of course, you have Erdogan. Um, and and you have you know, problems in Hungary. You know, there, there's lots of sort of uh, polarization around. There's lots of uncertainty in the direction of travel in the British government. Um, you know, so what 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 Alistair is saying is that if this trust is elected British Prime Minister, she has to push through huge supply side reforms. She has to um, um, uh, suspend many of the so-called green rules. She has to really go hell for leather for fracking. She has to cut taxes and, and that she has to do a sort of 21st century Thatcherism on steroids. He doesn't say this, but I think it's also important to say that the central bank, the Bank of England probably has to increase interest rates um, to stave off uh, what could soon be uh, a sterling crisis. Um, I think they've been too slow. Uh, you and I have discussed it many times, but we are, you, you get a palpable sense as we start to move into autumn now of a looming crisis right across Europe and, and our policymakers, and certainly the new British Prime Minister, will have to be very radical uh, and do things that many people won't like um, if we're going to get through this without falling into the precipice of a depression and inadvertently um, economically playing into the hands of people like Putin uh, and other uh, more extreme forces. Even assuming that the new PM is incredibly radical, I mean, change takes takes time, particularly on the energy front. Change can take years, if not decades. 
to implement. I mean, a lot of this is a problem, as Eve mentions in his article, of, of, of you know, failure in planning going back decades. Um, you're absolutely right. But don't underestimate if uh, a government like the British government really want to move the dial on energy. And we've seen things being opened up recently um, in, in the North Sea. Um, there's now suddenly talk of uh, uh, solar energy, solar um, farms in, in North Africa with a pipeline quickly bringing in energy uh, from there directly to the UK. If we really put our minds to it, there's a lot of development of wind power that can be developed very quickly, for example, uh, off Scotland, that, 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 that really can deliver quite a high percentage of Scotland's energy demands. If we really go for this and we really start to frack uh, in places like Lancashire and elsewhere, then it doesn't have to take uh, too long. And the other crucial thing, of course, is that when governments make it clear that they have a plan that they're moving really quickly, markets often then react to that um, and will start to price in uh, those futures and do it in, in good and positive ways. So the message is there is no time to lose. Uh, but as was said in the United States, it was a phrase that was that was popular over there, frack, baby, frack. Um, um, we don't have many choices now. Um, the green revolution will come. The technology is very clear about the direction of travel. But we're in, you know, we're in um, very, very, very choppy economic waters. And we're in those waters off the back of a pandemic as well. So... These are radical and difficult times, and they require radical thinking and action. Tim, thank you very much indeed. I've been in conversation with Professor Tim Evans. He's Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, thank you very much indeed. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.